Scred, they, they decided not to do it. Didn't anybody tell you? Oh, that's just great. That's really great. Boy, uh, how come nobody ever tells us Muppets anything? Well, we're, don't laugh. We're tired of being second-class citizens here. All scred don't now. give me that all scred stuff. I mean, you know, how come we're not in any of the major sketches? Really? Well, I could do news update. I'm capable. Okay. Good evening. I'm Scred, and you're not. <laughs> Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. Nick, are we having fun yet? Oh, we're having so much fun. We are not experts at this, at Henson and and the Muppets. Hopefully we know more than the listener, but we're still learning. Given the subject matter, even if we don't, they're probably going to enjoy just reliving some of the experiences, especially depending on when they got their first impression of whatever we happen to be covering on a given episode. The the goal is for us not to be perfect and not for us to be all-knowing, but to me, the goal is by the end of the show, by the time we finish this thing, we will be experts, mm-hmm. that we can actually say we're legitimate experts. And to me, the fun is in learning and, and we're, we're, we're watching so many cool things. As big of a Henson fan as I am, I probably never would have sought out and watched uh, if we weren't doing it for the show. And so, to me, that's worth the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, just, I've been enjoying it very much as, as we've gone on. Of course, this is a feat of lunatic daring. We are a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. We're telling his story and also uh, watching almost everything that the man ever made. Before we get started... I, of course, would like to ask you to check out our social media. We are at Lunatic Daring on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please check out lunaticdaring.com, which has our sources list, our, our bibliography, the, the material we're using to, to tell our story, and also a page of video links where you can watch along with us if you would like. And uh, yeah, we, we watched some interesting things today, and uh, I, I'm ready to talk about them. Let's do it. In 2002, Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In was ranked 42nd on TV Guide's 50 Greatest TV Shows of All Time. The classic sketch show, which ran for 140 episodes between 1968 and 1973, was a barrage of quick editing, flashy visuals, corny jokes, and amazing 60s fashion. While it had all the trappings of the decade's counterculture, it was more of a parody of said culture. Hippies and beatniks were sent up just as often as the squares or politicians. I mean, would a true counterculture show have Richard Nixon on to utter its famous catchphrase? Suck it to me! (laughs) The style of the show would help inspire Joan Cooney's vision for Sesame Street, and its influence on The Muppet Show a few years later is undeniable. Out of its zany ranks would emerge the great actor Henry Gibson, who would go on to star in my favorite movie, Robert Altman's Nashville, future Family Feud host Richard Dawson, and eventual Muppet Show hosts Ruth Buzzy and Lily Tomlin, who will also be in Nashville, by the way, the greatest American film of the 1970s. The brightest star to come out of Laugh-In, at least early, was Goldie Hawn. Beautiful, vivacious, and very, very funny, Hawn's teeny bikinis and psychedelic body paint had made an impression on anyone with a pulse. By 1971, Han had left Laugh-In and had already won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress as Walter Matthau's suicidal pseudo-mistress in 1969's Cactus Flower. She had made a career thus far of playing dumb blondes and wanted to move past that because it really wasn't who she was. That year, her first solo special, Pure Goldie, would attempt to set the record straight. Jim Henson, Frank Oz, and Don Saline traveled to Los Angeles and shot a few short pieces for the special. The through line for the appearance was a mutual crush between Kermit and Goldie, the first of many innocent but non-platonic romances he would have with female guest stars over the years. Now you know what would make me feel a lot better? What's that? A kiss? Oh, no, 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 no. no. Oh, you, you, come on. No, you shouldn't do that, you yeah. see. Uh, oh, it's, it's very dangerous, you know? Because yeah. you know that a pretty lady 
Whenever a pretty lady kisses a frog, why, the frog is just liable to turn into a handsome prince. Oh, Kermit, well, I wouldn't now, want that to that's happen, just you know. a fairy tale. I like and besides, the way I it couldn't happen to you because I wouldn't let it happen because I love you just the way you are. So um, I'm going to kiss you. Well, be, come be on, careful. Come on, come on. Uh, the standout moment, by most accounts the only standout moment, would be Kermit and Goldie's duet of Joe Raposo's Being Green, which had debuted on Sesame Street the year before. I found it really difficult to not believe the Muppets were real, Han would say. It's amazing. Kermit is a ball of string and felt, yet there is life in that. In the summer of 71, they traveled to Las Vegas to appear with Nancy Sinatra on her new review show. Since the room Sinatra was playing held more than 1,500 people, far larger than any Sullivan audience, Henson and company had to develop some larger puppets that would read better in a space that size. The show opened with yet another rendition of the famous Menomena sketch, this time with oversized versions of Menomena and the Swaths. They also developed their largest character to date, the two-story rod puppet known as Boss Man. Boss Man does little more than dance around, with his operator clearly visible to the audience. But it's an impressive puppet, and another example of Jim exploring every avenue he could in bringing his ideas to life. This trend of the Muppets giving support to high-profile one-woman shows would continue throughout the 70s, as they would join Cher and Julie Andrews in their respective television specials. On Thanksgiving Day that year, the entire Muppets crew took over the full hour and a half of the Dick Cavett show, which not only featured many classic Muppet bits, but also brought Jim, Frank, Jerry Nelson, Don Celine, and even builder Kermit Love, who had put together the enormous Boss Man puppet, out in front of the cameras. It's fun to see how unsettled they look on the couch, speaking with the genuinely interested Cabot, far more comfortable hiding behind their characters than being themselves. While all this was good fun, the shows with Sinatra got Jim thinking about creating a stage experience of his own, there was still more yarn to be spun in the tales of Muppetland. This chapter would be an adaptation of the German fairy tale, recounted by the Brothers Grimm, of course, the town musicians of Bremen. Since it's already a tale of talking animals doing very non-animal things, it wasn't a big stretch to see it done with puppets. Henson would change the setting, though, moving Bremen from northwest Germany to the Louisiana countryside. The Muppets in this special, other than Kermit, who again acts as both narrator and participant, would have a different look to them than any before. Instead of felt and string, many would be made of polyurethane, which allowed them to be, as Brian J. Jones describes, easily mushed and mashed, and manipulated by performers to give the puppets a dynamic range of expression. The foam heads on the grotesque human characters were so convincing that a famous Hollywood effects artist once asked Henson how they had been able to apply the foam directly to people's faces. The person responsible for this new type of Muppet look was Bonnie Erickson, who had joined Henson Associates as a costume designer working under Caroli Wilcox on The Frog Prince. As a designer and builder, she would prove to be invaluable, and going forward, the Muppets would implement Erickson's slightly cartoony foam approach alongside Don Celine's more abstract fabric and thread creations. Just a fun side note. Later, Bonnie Erickson would design mascot costumes for professional sports teams, most notably the equally loved and despised Philly Fanatic. Henson and Friends headed back to Toronto for taping in the early spring of 1972. Instead of going to network... The Muppet Musicians of Bremen would be syndicated and air in different markets at different times over the second half of the year. Hi, Hall, Kermit the Frog here, and I've got a really great story to tell you today. It's called The Muppet Musicians of Bremen. And in case you were wondering, Bremen is a little town in Louisiana, about four miles north of Gogolala. Now, the story is all about a donkey named Leroy, T.R. the Rooster, and Rover Joe and Cat Gut. Matter of fact, they're the ones playing that music. I'm going to start with a bit of a tangent. I'm going to ask you guys to bear with me for, for just a moment. I'm a longtime Jackie Chan fan. I don't know that Jackie ever collaborated with Hanson's, but a couple of years back, this movie came out called The Foreigner, which caused me to have to sort of re-examine my relationship with Jackie Chan movies, because he's his, his trademark is improvised weaponry, which is usually played for laughs. But in that case, it became terrifying. And as it turns out, Muppets are a lot of fun a lot of the time. But in the Traveling Musicians of Bremen, they were terrifying. When I was a kid, as much as I loved the Muppets, they also scared the hell out of me. 
there are about three episodes of The Muppet Show that when they came on in reruns, I would refuse to watch. If they started, I would run out of the room. One involved Vincent Price. Another one involved a murder mystery where Muppets are literally getting stabbed. We'll get to that. That's like season five, I think. And there was another one. Oh, and then when they first introduced Uncle Deadly, the phantom of the theater, it's actually pretty scary. Uh, Kermit, Kermit, what the has a skull-like head, fiery green eyes, and a point cape? I don't know. I don't know either, but it's right behind you! (laughs) You know, there's always been an element of the Muppets, like, and I kind of like a lot of children's entertainment from... God, I hate to play an old man, but children's entertainment back in my day had a little bit of a darker edge to it. If anyone has seen The Secret of Nim, <laughs> we saw that as children. That's a good thing to bring up. Something else that I have to reflect on, because I was a kid that saw a lot of horror movies way too young, but a lot of the practical effects that you would have seen in the 80s and 90s definitely borrowed a lot from the work that Henson had done when you would see like monsters or gargoyles or anything like that animated. And those really, like, bad, low-budget horror movies, I would see them a lot in anthology-type movies as well. It was reminiscent of some of the stuff that we saw tonight, or for tonight's episode. The Muppet Musicians of Bremen is not meant to be frightening. Let's get that off the top. Like, it's not like a horror story. Right. And I think we talked about this last episode. My least favorite type of Muppet is the human-sized Muppet. I can handle a Sweetums. And I can handle a Robin. What gives me the creeps is these human-sized Muppets, and there are a lot of them. They just weird me out, man. <laughs> the Muppet Musicians of Bremen, based on the old grim fairy tale. Uh, I went ahead and read the fairy tale. Mm-hmm. It took me less than three minutes. Yep. Um, and I'm going to give you the quick rundown. Here, here's the original tale. A donkey, treated poorly, runs off from his master to become a city musician. Along the way, he meets a hound, a cat, and a rooster who are all in desperate straits, and agree to come with him. And they join his band. They find a cabin in the woods where there's some robbers hanging out, and in order to scare them, they play their music, which turns out just to be them braying, barking, mewing, and crowing. The criminals get their courage up, head back, but basically get home alone by the animals and run off and are never heard from again. That's it. That's the whole story. The animals don't have names. There are no actual instruments <laughs> for the musicians to play. So, obviously, to make this an hour long, they had to add some stuff. Of course, this is directed by, by Jim Henson and written by Jerry Jewell. Joe Raposo was working full-time on Sesame Street at this point, so uh, the music by, is by a guy named Jack Elliott, but Jerry Jewell still wrote the lyrics. We start with Kermit as our narrator and end with Kermit as our narrator, but he still gets a little, one little, in this one, he only gets one scene, I think, right? Yeah, he's not as present in this one, and he breaks the fourth, I, I would say he breaks the fourth wall a bit more directly. Yeah, I would say that, yeah. So again, but just like the fairy tale, this is a story of four animals for sad old depressing animals <laughs> who uh who suffer under four awful terrifying disgusting men and run away from home to form a band basically uh, and spoilers just like in the original they never get to bremen um so what was your before i i, I want to start talk, i want to talk about some of the actors and stuff uh in this or some of the performers but what were your general impressions other than just i think you texted me uh, you messaged me that it was just a, a nightmare it, it's definitely nightmare fuel but outside of that you see more technical innovation i don't think we're at the point where they have uh sort of remote control aspects to the different puppets but the the movement of the mouth the implementation of marionettes you see the donkey pulling the cart a lot while still talking, which um, I think would have been revolutionary for the time. Like, it's not like they have a, a background that they're rotating behind them, or if they, they did, they did a really good job with it. But it does seem like they're moving through a closed set. I believe they are. I mean, this, this is a very Emmett Otter. This, to me, felt like, I know you haven't seen it yet, and we're gonna, we'll get to it, but this, to me, felt like a, a dry run for Emmett Otter. The kind of country setting the use of more realistic looking animals. Uh, as we've been trying to keep track of our characters real quick, we've been trying to keep track of, like I said, our, our new faces that we're going to carry forward with this. Not a whole lot in this one. The, the animals, there's TR, the rooster, Rover Joe, the uh, dog, Catgut, who's the very, very sad and, and drama queen cat. Fact is, I may not be dead, but I'm waiting to die. 
And you boys might as well leave me alone. And then there is Leroy the donkey. All of them would make other appearances other than Leroy. This is going to be the only time we see Leroy the donkey. If you want to see him now, you have to go to the uh, the Center for Puppetry Arts in Atlanta. <laughs> That's the only other place you're going to see Leroy the donkey. All the others would show up as supporting characters, background characters. So I think the two main additions to our Muppet repertoire company are the chickens and the rats. They, they had to create a bunch of chickens for this, and for, the, for TR's um, musical number. And they created a bunch of rats for Cat Gut's backstory. And uh, they just kind of kept them around. And while the rats aren't necessarily, the rats in this aren't as well articulated and as well made as the ones we're going to see, it, it, clearly not as well made as Rizzo in the future. But the chickens are pretty much the chickens. So it's real easy to understand that in the future, when they get to the Muppet show, they're like, well, we got all these chickens laying around. We might as well use them. So I think those are the two lasting characters, actually, or not even characters, but they're these groups, the, the chickens and the rats. I want to li- read you the list of the bad guys real quick. <laughs> um, so you have Caleb Stiles. He's uh, Cat Gut's owner. Land Pork, who's the guy that owns the chicken farm. Mean Floyd, who owned the dog, who's the, the real jittery scared one that was voiced by Jim Henson. And then the one that I swear I saw in my dreams last night, Mordecai Sledge. He had the most expressive face. This looks like a fine mess of stealing we did. <laughs> sure was fun whipping this stuff out of that boxcar when the guard wasn't looking. Didn't have time to see what we were stealing, though. Hope it's jewels and stuff. He, it seemed like his face was the most recessed, like especially around uh, the upper part of his face. Like he seemed like the most aggressive one. Oh, he was an angry man. Yeah, we should probably lay it out. So, yes, it has that, that, that structure like I was talking about of the musicians of Bremen. But every single one of these animals that goes on the road to become a musician are doing it because they are old and useless and they are doing it to avoid death. At the very beginning, the donkey, he, the reason the donkey runs away is because Mordecai is going to kill him. Mm-hmm. You about as much good to me as a pot with an old bottom. It's time for you to retire. Retire? I'd love to retire. I'm going to get me my gun and retire you proper. <laughs> right. And then we meet the, the rooster. And the rooster is old and has been sleeping in. So he's been missing sunrise and he's now useless to the farmer. Right now, TR stands for terrified rooster. How come? It's my master, the farmer lard pork. He's out to get me in a stew pot. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, fearsome way to die, son. No funeral, no coffin, just dumplings. And then we meet the dog who is just the most depressed dog I've ever seen. Until we meet the cat with cat gut, who they first find looking very dead. Well, you look at that. Ain't that sad now? It's a lady cat and she's dead. No, I ain't. You ain't? You sure look like a lady cat. She means she ain't dead, Rover Joe. Uh, pay no mind to him, ma'am. There ain't too much hay in his loft, if you know what I mean. And whenever we meet these new characters, they then give us a flashback as to how they got thrown out of their homes and how miserable their lives were. And again, I, I kind of liked this special, but I will say it was, was kind of bleak. <laughs> it was very bleak. Especially compared to the other two Tales from Muppet Land episodes. Like, they would have their their implicit threats, but this one was just old age is coming for all of you. This is what happens. You're more the fairy tale guy. What would you say like the the moral or the premise of Musicians of Bremen is in general? Like, is it just about making your own family? Finding your own family? There's a definite found family angle and I guess... Because in both versions, I kind of... And, and I've actually read, I believe, like a Disney storybook version of this story for my girls at some point. And every time I get to the end of the Musicians of Bremen, I just go like, so? (laughs) It's kind of, so with fairy tales, they were often used as moralistic tales, but they weren't always there with a clear moral. A fable's more likely to have like an explicit moral. But in this particular case, maybe it was just telling people to find a way to make themselves useful. In any adaptation you'll see of the Musicians of Bremen, 
there's always going to be that that self-start impetus. Even if we've got external pressures for these individual animals to pursue a dream, even if it is late in life or they're worried about the threat of something bad happening. The presence of the robbers, which I think in most cases, they aren't tied to the original people that owned the animals. I would no, actually... in, the grim, in, the, in the Grim story, no. In the Grim story, they're just four random robbers. It's an interesting thing to bring up because I feel like this is the one of the three fairy tale stories that we've seen up to this point that is the least subversive. And I, I mean least subversive in that it's not deviating from the original tale too much or the, tra- the trajectory of the, the original tale too much. The bones are absolutely there, but they're like, hey, Cinderella and um, the Frog Prince, they both did a lot more with the original source material, whereas this one was pretty faithful. Now, this one was more advanced from a technical perspective, significantly more advanced, but the storytelling... Yeah, it's impressive. It, it's impressive. It is. As much as we'll sit here and be like, it was kind of scary, they they did a lot. And there's you, it's amazing to see the way that their techniques progress from production to production with with the benefit of retrospect, because we're, we're seeing all of these after they've been out for a while. When we watched The Great Santa Claus, which you were the one that mentioned that, oh, wow, there's marionettes in here, right? And we hadn't really seen them do that before. This has lots of marionette work in it now. You know, they, they, they've gotten to this point where he's, he's mixing styles a lot more. So, so these full-sized uh, human puppets that we're not fans of, when they're in long shots, they are a costume, right? They're a human being in a costume with a mask on. And then when, they, when we get close to them, they are actual hand puppets for, like, speaking close-ups. And then, of course, like we said earlier with the donkey, he's a combination of marionette and hand puppet at various times, you know, which is a much more sophisticated way of working, of making multiple versions of the characters to be used for different types of shots, which is something, of course, they're going to be doing forever. To me, that was a development that I saw. The use of multiple puppets to create the image of one character. And even then, we, we spoke about the, the integration of the marionettes. It is significantly better than it was in the Great Santa Claus Switch. Like, I feel like with what they were doing with the Great Santa Claus Switch was just sort of working a problem, whereas in this case, it felt significantly more immersive. We're going to see this trend. We're already watching it happen, but yeah, he's going to keep trying to find ways. And there's a guy named Faz Fazakis, who we're going to talk about more later on uh, in another episode. But Faz was kind of the designer who was the one... He was kind of the mechanical genius. Uh, he was the one that figured out how to make when, when they'd say like, oh, I need a Muppet to do this thing that they actually can't do. He was the one that would find the mechanical way to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And we'll see. You're, you're absolutely correct that in this one, having a Muppet donkey pulling a cart was obviously a challenge that they had to rise to. It was not something they had done before. It was something that they had to figure out how to do. And we're going to see that time and time again, very famously, of course, with Kermit riding a bicycle. But this is just part of a trend that we've been witnessing, pushing the technology, pushing the techniques, you know, trying to find new ways to do this and trying to, and in my opinion, trying to find ways to untether themselves from being puppets. But we're going to see them trying to, for lack of a better term, overcome their limitations as puppets by using as many diverse methods as they can to create their motion and to create their existence. While this wasn't my favorite of the specials that we watched, it clearly was pushing those things further. I absolutely agree with that. And knowing, because again, the storyteller, which we're not going to get to for a little while, was sort of a cornerstone of my early media consumption. Seeing where this this motif goes with the, the focus on the folktales, and how, how much more advanced the integration is at that point. It is really fascinating to see where they are with the Bremen episode, specifically because, like, it's it's very clearly a closed set, and they're making the most out of But it's, you still have a very clear swamp feel. Like, they're not full-on Dark Crystal planting every blade of grass, but you do feel like you're in the swamp. Like, everything about the lighting and the the flora, it does feel like you're in the American South. Yeah, Bremen Bremen in real life is a northwestern town in Germany, almost, I think almost kind of up on the Baltic. And uh, so for this, he decided to put it in Louisiana, which while he's not from Louisiana, I can't imagine that this is too far off from his upbringing in Mississippi. 
and that that had to inspire this somehow. I'm sure it did. What did you uh, what you think of the music? It was solid. The progression was of them adding in the different instruments. I think they once they added the banjo in, there was a an additional horn that was there that wasn't really accounted for, but it's that's fine. It's not too hard to just suspend disbelief. Yeah, what do we have? We have the the donkey plays the tuba, the hound dog plays the trombone, the rooster plays the banjo, and the cat. Oh, she plays a trumpet. Mm-hmm. A couple new names in this behind the scenes that I'd like to point out. Uh, most of the performers are pretty much people we already know, including uh, Lovelady and Seagrin, who are still around. The voices, how, how, one thing they did with this, well, first of all, this is unlike Hey Cinderella and the Frog Prince. This has no actual humans in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, those others always relied on for Cinderella or it said the girl in the Frog Prince. Take the hall in the candle of her brain. But in this, it's all puppets or these grotesque mutants that they call puppets. But what they also did was there were some, they brought in some voice actors, including some women, which is actually kind of nice. Like uh, Rover Joe and Mordecai Sledge were voiced by uh, Francois Clanfer, who was a French Canadian actor, who had a pretty robust career with projects ranging from Police Academy 4 to Sofia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides. So quite a range there. Catgut, interestingly enough, and you can kind of tell this from the show, Catgut was voiced by a Toronto-born jazz singer who had been a backup singer for Cab Calloway. And uh, she eventually was on a show called uh, Cross Canada Hit Parade. And she is known as the first Canadian black television star. Hmm. So I thought that was kind of cool. The rest of them are voiced by Muppet people, mostly. Uh, there's also a guy named Nick Nichols, who did, uh, who did he do? He did Leroy, the guy, Leroy. And there's not much. Again, another Canadian. We talked about this last time. Shooting in Canada, you got to hire Canadians. It's just, it's just the rule. Hiring an actual jazz singer for Catgut, who definitely has the most soul, I guess, for lack of a better term, in her song, at least, in her main song. As much as I love Frank Oz, it is nice to hear actual female voices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to see more of that in the second thing we watched today, actually has several uh, women doing voices. The beginning, the, the donkey, he basically lucks into a bunch of instruments, right? Mordecai, his master, has stolen a bunch of garbage and throws it all out. And that's how the donkey ends up with all these instruments. And he collects these animals along the way. And you find out that the dog was thrown out of his house because his master thought he was a ghost. And the cat was thrown out because the cat had tried to forge a piece with the mice <laughs> or the rats that lived there because she was too tired to chase them anymore. But then they get to this weird part in the middle that is not from the fairy tale where they make up this kind of fantasy in their head that they're going to find a home and in it is going to be like a super nice family that they can play for and will take care of them. And I found that to be kind of a strange little beat there in the middle that, that they were just they just got fixated on the idea of this nice family and then they go to this cabin and through a little bit of you know hocus pocus and drawn shades they mistake the four bad guys which if you've ever seen the fantastic mr fox these four villains are very similar to kind of like the bad guys in fantastic mr fox i was thinking about fantastic mr fox this whole time they mistake them for this nice family and then it turns into like a full-on assault because <laughs> oh and these bad guys are also very superstitious and are afraid of what swamp demons basically Bissell's a swamp demons. how's that along about midnight on a full moon Old swamp demons come upon and a clawing and a zuckering out of the mud and the bugs licking their chops and are looking for supper. Yeah, well, even so, we safe in the shack. Oh, you know, old tree troll comes on right through that door. Yeah, bushbats too. <laughs> or maybe we better be careful. They all specify, there's there's an interesting thing that they do where they specify a type of attack that whatever cryptid they're worried about would inflict, and it's always reflective of the animal they lost. So uh, the one that used to have the cat is worried about getting cut by a small knife, or the one that owned the donkey is worried about getting hit by a club, um, which would be equivalent to the kick. Um, I think okay. one's afraid yeah. of bats, and that's the one that had the rooster. Mm, okay. But during that action sequence... All of them sort of come face to face with that fear, even though they're not aware that the animals are doing that. I mean, all the animals are assured that they're trying to save the family that isn't there to begin with. Yeah, they're just trying to play a nice song for this family that will hopefully take care of them. And instead, they terrorize this group of... Uh, it, it, it is interesting that all of their owners turn out to be a criminal cabal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like each of their individual... It, it's what I found weird in that final sequence, though, when they're fighting against their owners, is that none of them seem to recognize their owners. 
I suspended disbelief a little bit on that. I just figured in actuality they couldn't do the whole thing with silhouettes and it's the middle of the night in the middle of a swamp, so it's probably really dark. But you could clearly see all of the terrifying Muppets. And it wouldn't have worked if they'd actually gone full dark on it. This is the first one I've watched that we've watched really. Well, not the first thing. I mean, the cube or whatever. But this is the first like Muppet thing that we've watched that I'm not so sure my girls would enjoy. I mean, we are recording this in October. Just the, the fact that so much of this is based on a bunch of animals being treated poorly and being miserable. My kids aren't down for that. <laughs> Fair. They, they, they've got their mother's gene where they don't care how many people die in a movie. But if you kick a dog, she'll never watch it again. Mm-hmm. One of the things we talked about earlier is uh, the influence of Bonnie Erickson. Bonnie Erickson was a new designer to the team. And, and these human villains in this are all designed by Bonnie Erickson. And they very much bear her trademark. And we should clarify, even though we, we discuss these guys in terms of being nightmare fuel, from a technical perspective, they're very impressive. Especially the scariest one. Mordecai is awesome looking. He's just scary. I'm probably going to eventually do a bonus episode where I kind of just break down all the Muppet designers. Because we keep mentioning them. You know, uh, the names come up like Don Celine and Carolee Wilcox and uh, Faz Fazakis and now Bonnie Erickson and Kermit Love. We're going to have all these designers come in. So I might do an episode where we kind of just lay out who these designers are and what they contributed to make it a little more clear cut. Because I think when we're trying to tell the story in this chronological way, it can get a little mixed up. And, uh, and I'm not always keeping track of the designers. And I think the puppet builders deserve some cr- deserve a lot of credit, obviously. But there were more of them than just kind of the ones that people think about. There were, there were several that contributed to the, the look of all these things. And I think while Bonnie Erickson's puppets are different from Don Celine's puppets, going forward, they are both going to be identified as Muppets. Um, they're, they're both going to be considered in the Muppet style. Because when we get to the Muppet Show, we're going to see they do use both styles. They do use these kind of polyurethane, really mushy kind of slightly scary humanoids, and they use Fozzie Bear. I thought the music was pretty good. I really liked Cat Gut's song. I thought that was, was nice. I thought Cockadoodle Blues was kind of fun. T.R. the Rooster's kind of goodbye song to his uh, harem of hens. T.R., by the way, T.R. Rooster, T.R., how many, how many different names does T.R. say it stands for? His name is T.R. Uh, I want to say there are at least five. Tuckered Rooster, Terrified Rooster, Traveling Rooster, Tender-Hearted Rooster, and Tough Rooster, I think are the ones that I found. And uh, like I said, we'll see him again on The Muppet Show in small parts. The dog, uh, Rover Joe, he actually sh- also shows up in The Muppet State Manhattan. And without looking, I know exactly what scene it is. <laughs> I am Mr. Skeffington. One of my secretaries made a reservation for the weekend in the name of Snookums. This is the last installment of Tales from Muppetland. We'll come back to other fairy tale like projects in the future, but this kind of trio of television specials, it kind of fizzles out at this point. They they definitely have to shift their focus a little bit. And I mean, Jim is someone who's got some who's got things cooking for years at a time. He might be trying to bring some of the other things to fruition. What was your favorite of the the band members? The rooster probably scared me. Actually, no, the dog didn't scare me that much. The donkey did kind of scare me a little bit. Like, something about the bug eyes, I was just like, I I feel a little uncomfortable. I felt the donkey, is as well executed as it was, I still found it disconcerting when he was walking. Maybe I just don't like the fairy tale. Maybe I just, maybe, maybe I just don't get the fairy tale. There are interesting things that can be done with it as a springboard, but there's also this part of me that just kind of wants to dub over it with the score and some of the quotes from dead alive just to see what effect it would have. It would probably <laughs> right. be terrifying. I wouldn't say that it's one of my favorite fairy tales or even one of my favorite grim fairy tales, but I don't think it's a bad one. And I think that in terms of a- or adapting fairy tales, it's one of the ones that's underutilized. There's a lot that you can do with this particular springboard because, because it gives you an ensemble and you don't get that in a lot of fairy tales. Uh, I also wrote down that this is kind of like they, their own version of the bucket list or Las Vegas, those like old guy movies <laughs> that uh, would like Clint Eastwood, Morgan Freeman, old guy movies, where you they know, just get a, or like uh, Space Cowboys. <laughs> that would be an interesting pitch. Or just a modern Musicians of Bremen, but it said it's, you know, Clint Eastwood and, you know, Christopher Plummer or something. The Birth of Saturday Night Live is a well-documented and well-worn story. It is also not the subject of this podcast. 
I'm sure someone else is doing that, so we're going to be brief, so we can get to the good stuff. The two most popular books on the subject are Saturday Night, A Backstage History of Saturday Night Live, by Doug Hill, and Shales and Miller's Live from New York, which is an oral history of the show. So, to move things along, we're going to take our lead from the High Priest of Druidia. Okay, here we go! The short, short version! In 1974, NBC was running reruns of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson on Saturday and Sunday nights at 11.30. This didn't make Carson happy. He felt that the audience needed a break from the show, a few days to miss it, before it came back on Monday. What Johnny wanted, Johnny got. NBC brought over a young producer from ABC, Dick Ebersol, age 27, and made him their director of weekend late-night programming. He was tasked with finding something to fill the 11.30 slot on Saturday nights. Ebersol was a sports guy, but this was a big chance. He was introduced to a Canadian producer and former Laugh-In writer named Lorne Michaels. They hit it off, at first at least, and started putting together a writing staff and cast for the new show. In the process, they hired comedy legends such as Chevy Chase, John Belushi, Gilda Radner, Michael O'Donoghue, Dan Aykroyd, Lorraine Newman, Al Franken, Garrett Morris, and more. The show debuted live on October 11th, 1975, with guest host George Carlin. It opened with a sketch where O'Donoghue gave John Belushi some very peculiar English lessons. Repeat after me. I would like... I would like to feed your fingertips... To feed your fingertips... To the Wolverines. To the Wolverines. <laughs> Next... I am afraid. I am afraid. We are out. We are out. Our badgers. Our badgers. Would you accept? Would you accept a Wolverine? A Wolverine in its place. In its place. Saturday Night Live really hasn't changed much over the last forty-five years. It took them a few episodes to establish a format, but not very many. And there were plenty of growing pains behind the scenes, of course. But it's pretty much the same show now as it was then. But when Saturday Night premiered. It featured two elements no one today would associate with the venerable sketch show. The first was funny man Albert Brooks, who was attempting to make it in movies after the success of his first two comedy records. He was brought on to create short films for the show, but it wasn't a good fit. Something about his humor didn't mesh with the not-ready-for-prime-time players, and he didn't feel like he was being appreciated. He ended up only making six films in total and leaving the show midway through the first season. The second out-of-place element was the Muppets. Jim had long wanted to make it clear that the Muppets weren't kiddie entertainment, and Sesame Street had dealt that desire a self-inflicted, albeit worthwhile, blow. He was introduced to Lauren Michaels through their mutual agent, the inimitable Bernie Brillstein. First, we went to Saturday Night Live, because uh, Jim, once again, didn't be, want to be known as a children's act. So Lauren... In the first contract for Saturday Night Live, there were three essential factors. Lorne Michaels, Jim Henson and the Muppets, and Albert Brooks Films. Saturday Night would be a perfect antonym. It was on at night. It was for teenagers and young adults. It was aggressive and obscene. Sesame Street's methods were scientific and well thought out. Its goals clearly altruistic and educational. Saturday Night thrived on chaos, where the shows were written in impossibly small amounts of time, driven by cocaine and fear of unemployment. They really didn't know what would work until it went on the air, and by then it was too late. Their goals were hedonistic, anti-everything, and not at all concerned with what their viewers were learning. Henson created a whole new gang of grotesque Muppets for this late-night, grown-up comedy show. King Blubus, Queen Puta, Scrud, Wiss, and the Mighty Favog, the denizens of a rocky alien world of bubbling tar pits, sulfurous wastelands, rotting forests, and stagnant mud flats known as the Land of Gorch. Come with us now from the bubbling carpets to the sulfurous wasteland, from the rotting forest to the stagnant mud flats. From the bubbling carpets to the sulfurous wasteland, from the rotting forest to the stagnant mud flats, this land was made for me, and me only, because I am Plubus, king of all I survey. So, Nick, do you know what John Belushi called the Muppets when they were on Saturday Night Live? I believe they were called the Mucking Fuppets. They were the Mucking Fuppets, yeah. So this idea of bringing the Muppets onto 
this late night show. Now, remember when they did this, they were kind of already on board before they knew what the show was going to be. And over the time with Lorne Michaels developing the show and bringing in the cast and bringing in writers, it ended up becoming this thing that when it was finally time to make the show, the Muppets didn't really fit in. Before we get into kind of the details, what was your overall impression of the land of Gorch? And, and, and did it feel like it worked for you? I wouldn't say that it worked, but I don't think I don't think that it couldn't have worked. I think if the writing had been a bit stronger, it would have gone further. There was a very strict formula. It was kind of paint by numbers. You would have a couple of quippy one-liners. As it went on, as you got into some of the later episodes, you did start to see a bit more immersion and a bit more depth. But generally speaking, there's a problem. We're going to go talk to this head. We've got to drop something into the toilet, hear the flushing sound. Yeah. We'll get some sort of a milk toast response in terms of the advice we need. It's sort of like a proto-super capitalistic trash heap. The Great Favog is very much the Marjorie the trash heap from Fraggle Rock. But Marjorie didn't charge. You mentioned the writing. One of the things about this, kind of like with the Jimmy Dean show, is is the land, the, the land of Gorch bits were not written by the Muppets. They're not written by Henson or Jerry Jewell for union reasons. They were written by the Saturday Night Live staff writers. Now, a head writer, um, Michael O'Donaghy, hated the Muppets, was very famous for saying, I don't write for felt. Very famous saying. The writer's room, I do believe they had a big bird in the writer's room with a noose around its neck hanging from the ceiling. Classy. They really hated the Muppets. Most of the writing of these Land of the Gorch sketches fell to two writers who were at the time only apprentice writers on the show. They weren't even, they hadn't even, they were, they were like the lowest on the totem pole. We look back on it now and those writers were Al Franken and Tom Davis, who were a writing team and who are, of course, legendary people on Saturday Night Live. And one of them was even a U.S. senator for a while. So the, the, the writing was something that was passed around. No one wanted to write for the Muppets. And so my big, there was one, there's apparently one of the skits was written by Jim Henson. Which one was that? Uh, it's the Raquel Welch one. Listen, listen, Scred. We're lovable. Never forget that, Scred. Mm. Uh, You're so affectionate, one. We just have to find somebody and ask them where are we coming to show it. Chief, you're somebody now. Hmm. Well, hi there. You're the Muppets, aren't you? Oh, yes, yes. That is indeed us. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've always thought you people were so lovable. You hear that, Scred? Oh, that's that's true, lady. Yeah, we're we're known far and wide for being lovable. Chief, that lady is Raquel Welsh. Oh. Oh, yeah. Well... Yeah, you uh, you sure are Raquel Welch, uh, all over, aren't you? Later on, Jerry Nelson claimed that he wrote the first Lily Tomlin one, <laughs> and we'll we'll talk about those. But everything else was written by them. So as you talk about it, could it could have worked? One of my thoughts was, what if they had let them do their thing? Everyone would have won, right? Because on the Jimmy Dean show, like we said, they were they had given it to these old school hardcore comedy writers. And in this, the Saturday Night Live crew, as, as talented and as powerful as they were, they were a bunch of kids who had no idea what they were doing. The Muppets just weren't their thing. They were trying to make the counterculture rock and roll show of the decade. Something else that, that strikes me in relation to your earlier question about how it, how it might have gone, I think it would have turned into something like that early 90s Dinosaurs series. Um, I think that was related to the Henson Company as well, although I don't think Jim had a direct hand in it. Yeah, no, that's a Henson production. Not the mama, 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 not the mama. That sort of sitcom-esque thing, and I, I don't think Gorch was trying to be a sitcom, but in terms of its its comedic beats, it had a lot in common with those. Well, what I find fun is if you watch it, you know, I have uh, both season, the first two seasons of Saturday Night Live on DVD. And actually, just in time, I believe every season is now up on Peacock. So if people want to go watch these episodes, they can go on Peacock and watch them. But I watch them kind of all in a row. And what's fascinating, because it's about a total of about an hour and a half, if you watch all the Gorch things back to back to back, and it actually tells a story. There's actually kind of a sad showbiz story being told. So, But, but before we get to that, uh, so we have uh, King Plubus, our, our leader, or kind of over the top, angry leader guy played by Jim Henson. We have Scred, who's probably the standout character, I would say. His uh, sidekick, uh, played by Jerry Nelson, 
when they were doing pre-production on the Dark Crystal, Scred was the one that Jim showed the puppet builders to say, this is as close to a Skeksis as I've made so far. Interesting. You have the mighty Favog, who, like you said, is a talking statue slash toilet slash oracle with uh, catchphrases. And that was played by Frank Oz. I think Frank's actually probably the best part of these. I actually think Favog's very funny. If he was doing a, a Belushi impression when he did that. I have no idea. Um, you have Puta, who was played by a woman named Alice Tweedy, who was a puppeteer and an actress and a Captain Kangaroo alum. And then there was Vosh, who was uh, his mistress that had some very revealing cleavage. And she was played by Fran Brill. Who we talked about before. I didn't realize that was her, but that's hilarious. And then there's Wiss, who is his stoner hippie son, uh, who, is, who is played by a very young Richard Hunt. King Plubus rules this land of Gorch. They are not Gorch. These characters are not Gorch. These characters are Muppets. They are refer to themselves as Muppets. They are Muppets that live in the land of Gorch. They kind of live in this weird wasteland. What ends up happening is they 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 do the first 10 or 11 episodes of the season have Land of Gorch in them. We get our, fir- our fir- the first episode, we get our introduction to them. I don't quite get this one. I, and off the bat, I already kind of don't get this one. Puta is having some sort of medical condition that I didn't understand. Oh, the she couldn't get rid of her darts? I didn't get what that meant. Is that like a sh- shedding thing or a molting thing? I couldn't. I think tell there might have been a reference to molting. I'm not sure what it would have been a metaphor for. It could have yeah. just been something they came up with by throwing things at a wall. And remember that Scred is kind of flirting with Puta because that's going to come up later. I think um, they've been established to be having or have had an affair at, at this early on. Like she said, not right now, or he's he's really close by or something. You have you have King Plubus. He's got a mistress who he's trying to hide from his wife, but his wife is also having an affair with Scred. This was clearly an attempt to be more adult and it could have worked i don't know if it would have because saturday night night live has taken on and formed its own very cohesive identity which wouldn't necessarily have room for muppets on a regular basis but at the time that it started if they'd given it a little bit more love i do think that it could have worked and it could have been a very strong addition to the show in later years you'd see things like avenue q everyone's a little bit racist sometimes for uh, Meet the Feebles. Let me tell you about sodomy. I almost think it very hard me. But I enjoy the act of sodomy. my call a on me. But if you try to then you might agree that you enjoy the act of sodomy. That would be a bonus episode if we wanted to cover that. And it would not be for the and it would not I've be for the clips. kiddies. I've never seen it in full i need to watch it at some point oh i love meet the feebles but it's you know it's not for the kiddies something came out recently called uh, the happy town murders that's actually directed by brian henson the happy time murders it's apparently terrible but it was directed by brian henson I want those to are real it. muppets being used and like you mentioned one of my problems with the early episode early sketches is that every one of them ends the same way which is they go see the mighty favog and they ask him some advice and he asks for payment and they pay him and then he has a couple of one-liners and the skit's over. <laughs> it's pretty much how every skit ends. 103 is a good one, though. Uh, the third episode is where Plubis and Scred find out that Plubis' son Wiss is off smoking craters. Hey, man, wow, your aura's really red. <sighs> your aura's gonna be black and blue in a minute, fella. Hey, lighten up, Jack, lighten up. Listen, all the evidence is not in, Buster. That stuff there rots your brain. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, what? Nelson and Hunt were known to pass a joint around backstage every once in a while. So, you know, it's probably one of the best ones. I I like the moment where Plubis tries to talk to his son in, like, hip kid speak. Uh, hey, listen, uh, uh, dude, uh... (laughs) Big Daddy-O here wants you to ixnay with the crater smoke, you dig, huh? Hey, man, don't down me with those bad vibes, Dad. How do you do, fellow kids? What? But it's 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 kind of funny. There um, was uh, a later episode where Scred was worried that Plubus was going to find out about his affair. And it yeah. sort of, it tapers off, but that might have been one of my favorite Favog interactions, because it's the only time that he just doesn't want payment. This is the mighty Favog. Talk to me. Hey, Favog, I got a problem. Hmm, it's gonna cost ya. What is it? Business, sports, or personal? Sexual. All right. 
point, chickens. Mmm, wow, that's kind of steep. Uh, Is this real juicy stuff? <laughs> yeah, it's about me and pewter. All right. <laughs> Two chickens. And pubis. No charge. There's the one that's it's probably the most popular one, uh, the, again, the one that may have been written by Jerry Nelson. Puta and Plubus find out that Scred has a giant crush on Lily Tomlin. Um, they're like going through his stuff and they find pictures. There's a reference in it too that I thought was weird and maybe why I believe this was written by Jerry Nelson is because there's a reference to him having a crush on Fran Allison. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say he couldn't, but I can't imagine Al Franken pulling out a Kukla Fran and Ollie reference between like you know lines of cocaine i just can't figure i just can't imagine that 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 feels like that might have must have come from someone who knew their puppets you know but then they so they find out that he's in love with lily tomlin now instead of fran allison and then we cut to scred and lily tomlin in a very sweet scene i didn't realize that she'd been in the business that long because i i know her from things like i heart huckabees but I, it was weird to oh. be like oh wait i know that name i wasn't expecting to know that name oh lily's a legend i mean she was on laughing um, it, it was kind of her big break was on Laughing. Uh, she was nominated for an Academy Award for my favorite movie of all time, Robert Altman's Nashville. Uh, she no, she was already a, a, a comic force by then. Hmm. But the scene between the two of them, uh, I thought was very sweet. I think Jerry Nelson does a great job with Scred. He he almost feels like a Dave Goals character, but Dave Goals isn't quite here yet. And they and they what do they sing together? They sing um oh they sing I got you babe to each other, which I think is very sweet. Um, I like that one a lot. There's an episode where Plubus and Scred just basically get drunk. That's the entire episode. Mm -hmm. That's the entire sketch is they just go on a bender. Find their way to, uh, yeah, they still end up at the Favog. And then there's the acupuncture episode. Yes, where he has a headache. That I, that, that I did love that. Yeah, where, where Plubus gets a headache and uh, Scred gets him to try acupuncture and he's shoving needles into his face. Yeah, there's the Christmas party where they're throwing a Christmas party, but everyone's going to the bees Christmas party. Now, the bees, for people who don't know, the bees were actually... That's kind of code for the Saturday Night Live crew. There was a, a running gag in the first season about these bee costumes. Mm -hmm. And if you if you want to see a great moment in television history, go back and look at when Rob Reiner hosted the show. Rob Reiner hosted like the third or fourth episode of Saturday Night Live. I think it was the third. And he hated it. All week he complained. He thought it was going to be a disaster. And there's a moment where he's at a table in a sketch and Belushi is in a bee costume. And he comes out to Reiner and he's like, I'm sorry if you think we're ruining your show, Mr. Reiner. But, uh, see, you don't understand. We didn't ask to be bees. You see, you, you've got Norman Lear and a first-rate writing staff. But this is all they came up with for us. Do you, do you think we like this? No. No, Mr. Reiner. But we don't have any choice. I don't know what to say. I feel terrible, but I... I feel terrible. You see, we, we, were, we were just like you were five years ago. Mr. Hollywood, California, number one show, Big Shot. That's right. We're, we're just a bunch of actors looking for a break, that's all. What do you want from us, Mr. Rob Reiner, Mr. Star? What did you expect? The sting? The Muppets are throwing their own party apart from the SNL crew, and their party sounds much cooler. Again, because there's probably a lot more cocaine and booze there. And Candace Bergen visits for like a minute, and then she goes, sings a Christmas song. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. And then she goes back to the other party. Uh, then, yeah, then there's the one where Puta tells Scred that she's guilt feels guilty about their affair. <laughs> and that he should confess to Plubus. But then when he's about to confess, Plubus admits that he thinks that she's having an affair and that he will murder whoever the person is. So, of course, Scred doesn't want to say anything. <laughs> and then uh, that all, oh, that, that's the one that opens with the joy of sex. Yeah. Where they're reading The Joy of Sex and they're talking about what position to try tonight. And then, then the next episode, this is where we get, it, it gets a little weird. We get in the next episode, this episode where Plubus is out of town. So Scred uh, shows Puta the new sex toy he bought. <laughs> that wasn't, I, I was wondering 
just how much stuff they were able to slide past the radar back then, because I was half expecting that thing to start vibrating when they just started using it to bludgeon each other. Well, they go off, yeah, they're hurting each other with it, but then they go off camera, and it's making noises, and it's it's basically a sex toy. It's a weird-ass alien sex toy, but it's a sex toy. This is the last time you're going to see these characters on the Gorch set. That's the last episode where Scred and Puta, Plubus isn't even in it, where Scred and Puta are on the, the Land of Gorch set. In the next episode, there's not even a Gorch segment. There's just a piece where Gilda Radner is about to introduce the musical guest when Scred kind of interrupts her. And goes on this little rant about why can't, why are you guys putting the Muppets aside? Why can't we be in the big sketches? And you can already tell people have already realized the Muppets don't fit in. And the writing is kind of on the wall. Then they skip a few episodes. A couple episodes later where Plubus and Scred, Anthony Perkins, uh, Norman Bates, Anthony Perkins is hosting. I think that we're all in our private traps, clamped in them, and none of us can ever get out. We scratch and, and claw, but only at the air, only at each other. And for all of it, we never budge an inch. Plubus and Scred corner Anthony Perkins to ask him to pressure Lorne Michaels to let them back on the show. So it's very clear at this point that they, they're losing, their, they've lost their slot, right? They're, they're no longer getting a regular sketch every week. And instead of just having that happen, they're commenting on it and they're making jokes about it. Uh, and then it, what's one note, one thing to know at the end of that episode, they actually bring the Muppets out for the goodbye on stage at the end. That's the only time the Muppets like come, kind of come out on stage, you know, when they're waving goodbye at the end and, mm-hmm. and the music plays. Um, John Belushi pulls a knife on Plubus. <laughs> you can actually see like, cause he, oh. he, cause Plubus is like, goes up to him and you see Belushi pull it. He's joking around, but Belushi like pulls out a pocket knife and is like holding it up towards Plubus. It's, it's real subtle. I read about it and then I had to go back and look at it. And then what happens with them now is they basically become backstage characters who have basically been fired but haven't left yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the next one is and probably and this is the one that apparently Jim Henson wrote or at least part of it, which is where Plubus and Scred are talking about how they're not welcome on the show anymore. And then they meet Raquel Welch, who is the guest that night. At this point in time, Raquel Welch was considered maybe the sexiest woman on the planet, at least top three. And uh, watching this episode. I'm not going to disagree. But this is where it gets, yes, we've had sex toys and affairs, but like this gets full on sexual. <laughs> oh, yeah. Where they flat out are hitting on Raquel Welch. You know, matter of fact, uh, until you've made it with a Muppet, uh, I'm not sure. uh, 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 wait a minute. You know, you know what I'm saying. Wait a minute, lover. Are you talking about making love to me? <laughs> because because uh, you guys are just puppets, right? I mean, uh, you don't even exist below the waist. <laughs> I mean, all you are is just the top half of a person, right? Yeah, but... So that kind of makes you just a lot of talk, all talk, right? Well, I'm pretty good with my hands. I've noticed. <laughs> And then Chevy Chase comes out and tells them, you're not on this week either. Every one of their appearances after episode 11 is them like wanting to be on the show and everyone going like, you're not on this week. And then in that very episode with Raquel Welch, it's kind of, it's very sad. Scrat and Plubus go see the mighty Favog, who tells them that the Muppets don't have any choice. They're done. And he tells them, you're just puppets. You're not real. You don't have feelings. Get in this trunk and go away forever. And they basically just lock themselves in a trunk. They go off to die. End of season one, there's a scene where Chevy finds Scred in a trunk and he begs Chevy to try to get him back on the show. And the mighty Favog tries to cut a deal where there was a very famous thing that happened on SNL. I'm Lauren Michaels, the producer of Saturday Night. Right now we're being seen by approximately 22 million viewers. But please allow me, if I may, to address myself to four very special people. John, Paul, George, and Ringo, the Beatles. Lately, there have been a lot of rumors to the effect that the four of you might be getting back together. That would be great. In my book, the Beatles are the best thing that ever happened to music. It goes even deeper than that. You're not just a musical group, you're a part of us. We grew up with you. It's for this reason that I'm inviting you to come on our show. (laughs) Now, we've heard and read a lot about personality and legal conflicts that might prevent you guys from reuniting. That's something which is none of my business. You guys will have to handle that. But it's also been said that no one has yet to come up with enough money to satisfy you. Well, if it's money you want, there's no problem here. 
the National Broadcasting Company has authorized me to offer you a certified check for $3,000. Paul and John said they almost did it. And John and I happened to be in his house in the Dakota yeah. while this was going on. And we said, come on, should, should we, we, should yeah, we go? Yeah. It's just down the road. And for half a second, we nearly went, wow. But that was like as near as it got, you know. Yeah. Money wasn't good enough. So that season ends, and, and the last time we see them, they basically live in these trunks. And then in the very first episode of season two, where Lily Tomlin is back, and Lily Tomlin, who's probably had the sweetest interaction with them. And uh, again, many of these people were talking about Lily Tomlin, Raquel Welch, would go on to host The Muppet Show. Mm -hmm. It's basically a morgue. <laughs> They're basically lying in a morgue. I didn't, I didn't catch that particular one. Boy, do I have to go to the bathroom. Feels like I've been in storage for months. Hey, what is this place, a morgue? Oh, wow, a morgue. Hey, boss! Hey, Chief Blubus! Hey, Blubus! What's going on? Pewter, did you know we've been dead for three months? What? Yeah. How could that be? I was sure we were just on the air. Oh, uh, or was that a dream? No, that was a rerun. That's super dark. And then Lily Tomlin visits them, and then she tries to get them to sing a song called I Whistle a Happy Tune, but as they start it, none of them know how to whistle, so even there, they fail. <laughs> and that's kind of the last time we see them. So what I thought was fascinating watching them all as a big chunk was that we had this saga of these creatures who were given their own spot, who were given their own, you know, four minutes every week on this huge show. And after about 10 episodes, they get canned. But they stick around and they keep asking to get put up and, and they say, no, you're not on this week. They try to interact with people. They're, they're put off. And then eventually they're shoved into a trunk <laughs> and locked away and forgotten. And if you watch it all as one thing, it's a very sad showbiz tale. Had you watched any of these before? No, I, I was familiar with them as a concept. And I think I'd seen some of the images of the Muppets, but I'd, I'd never actually watched one of the sketches. It's a weird fit. I don't know if it could have worked. There is a sweetness, despite however dark Henson wanted to be or whoever, however adult he wanted his material to be at times. One, there was a threshold that he wouldn't go over. And two, there was a sweetness to his stuff. I think that if they would have abandoned it and gone completely with the Saturday Night Live anarchist philosophy, I don't think it would have been the Muppets anymore. I think it's possible that they could have carved out a niche if they'd been given decent bits. But if that had been the case, Saturday Night Live as we know it today would not exist. It would have been a fundamentally different show. So it's easy to understand that when they were putting the show together, that they just didn't know what they, were, what they had. But I think by the time the show came together, and definitely by the time you have personalities like Belushi, like Michael O'Donoghue, like Chevy Chase, it just felt like the environment or the, the energy that those people and all the other cast members as well, the energy that those people brought, I do believe is incompatible with the energy of the Muppets. There's a comedy gene that they both share. There's an irreverence that they both share. But Saturday Night Live early on was kind of ruthless. It was ruthless behind the, the camera, still is. If you know anything about how the writing process works on that show, it's insane. I, I don't know. I just don't, I just don't think they fit. Were these bits particularly inspired? No, because again, they were being written by two very young, inexperienced writers who had no interest. Franken tells a story where he would go to Jim Henson's office and pitch him uh, the new, you know, what they were going to do this weekend. And Jim would go, yeah, Scred wouldn't say that. And Franken would be, get upset because he'd be like, what do you mean? He's a puppet. He'll say whatever you make him say. He's like, yeah, but Scred doesn't say that. The, the SNL writers themselves could not wrap their head around the fact that the Muppets themselves were the stars and that they had personalities and characters that could not be bent to the will of their joke writing. And that's why I think it couldn't have worked, is Henson had very clear parameters in which he wanted the Muppets to operate. And I think SNL is about not having those parameters. I think he could have made it subversive, but I don't think... Like, there's that, there's that creative integrity there that you, you bring up, where Scrag might say this and completely be in character, but if you're just having him say something to have him say something, and it, it breaks the character of whatever would have been established... That's the line that he wouldn't cross. It's not necessarily one of obscenity. At the same time, Sesame Street is still going strong. And Sesame Street is still the biggest thing they've been involved in. There had to be some reluctance, even though, yes, it was an attempt to make something more adult, edgier, proving that Muppets aren't just for kids. There's still got to be a little 
I don't know, a little reticence to go full out and have and have these considered Muppets and also the ones in Sesame Street be considered Muppets. We're not going to see any of these guys again, except for there's a moment at the end of the Muppet movie where there's a very wide shot of a whole bunch of Muppets that weren't in the shot before. And there's a huge shot. It's like the, the, one of the biggest shots of Muppets ever. And they, a bunch of them do appear in that shot, as well as, I think, several members of Salmon Friends. And it's kind of like a magical moment at the end where everything that they've made, every Muppet that has been made up until that point kind of magically appears. But I think that's the only time you're going to see any of these characters again. When you say Saturday Night Live now, nobody thinks Muppets. They referenced Jason Siegel hosted an episode around the time he was in that new Muppet movie and the Muppets came out and referenced the fact that they'd been on SNL. But before that, you, I don't think you would have seen much. It's just not something that people, you know, SNL is an, is an institution been around for a very long time. It's fairly unchanging in its structure. And if you say SNL to people, they're going to a million different skits and characters and songs are going to pop into your brain and and, and, and you're going to get the church lady. St. Patrick's Day. Let's think about that. What is it really? A harmless Irish tradition or a chance for people to fornicate like drunken little beastmasters. You're going to get John Belushi as the samurai. Uh, what's your checkout time? We should all you're gonna get it's friday it's 10 30 it's time to party i'm your excellent host wayne campbell with me as always is garth party on wayne party on garth all the way up to justin timberlake and uh andy sandberg putting parts of their anatomy into a box just follow these steps one you're going to get all of those things. You're not going to think about the Muppets. They tried something that was consciously more adult, and it just didn't quite get there. At around the same time that Lauren Michaels was trying to figure out how do you fire the Muppets, another opportunity came up and made it a lot easier for them to leave. Back in our first episode, we talked about Tales of Tinkerdy, Jim's first try at a half-hour television show. Hey, Chad here. It was in the second episode. Not the first. The second episode. Sorry. That and other attempts failed, but they are forgotten among the massive successes, like Rolf's run on the Jimmy Dean show, and especially, of course, Sesame Street. But Jim and Jerry had never stopped working towards having a show of their own. They had played sidekick to a singing cowboy, made Ed Sullivan laugh, exchanged googly eyes with Goldie Hawn, and had just literally been shoved into a drawer on America's biggest and hippest late-night show. Sesame Street was huge, of course, and the Muppets were and are a large part of that, but Jim didn't conceive of it. He didn't control it. He didn't own it. The Muppets needed a show of their own. A show for Muppets. A Muppet show. It's going to take them a few tries, but I promise. They'll get there. Next week, sex and violence. A Feat of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz. And a proud production of... Antithesis Audio.